this and be glad in it. Uh, we have a lot to be uh, rejoicing about, and so I was excited uh, when Pastor Brandon asked me to come preach here. Uh, I just want you to know that I have a, a, a soft spot in my heart for Pastor Brandon and Pastor Josh. I just love their heart and what they're doing here in the city and how they're leading and shepherding uh, you all, and so I'm thankful uh, to come to proclaim uh, God's word with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, or uh, nowadays, I feel like if you, if you have your phones, uh, flip to Ephesians chapter 5 or turn on Ephesians uh, chapter 5. We're going to be at verse 15 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. Paul's author, and this is how he starts off in verse 15. He says, Look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing and making melody, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the word of God for the people of God. You may have a seat. Um, before we dive in, let's, let's go the, to the Lord in prayer. Um, Father, we just come to you and we uh, realize that you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy um, of every breath. God, you, God, you are holy. And God, we just come to you and we praise you and worship you. Um, because you are the God who has pursued us through your son, Jesus. But even... Romans 5, 8 says, while we're yet sinners, while we're at our worst, you sent your son to die. So, Lord, we praise you for pursuing us, and we just ask that through your spirit, that your spirit would reveal your word to us. Your spirit would help us to understand that your spirit would uh, change the way that we think, change the way that we feel, and change the way that we live. And so, Father, would you prepare the soil of our hearts so that the seed of your word would fall on good soil and produce fruit? Lord, that that this sermon would not be about me, but it would be about uh, your glory, your word, and our transformation. Jesus, name I pray, amen. So the book of Ephesians. The letter of Ephesians. Um, I trust you all can still hear me, even if uh, sound's going out. Uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, some say, one theologian says, the crown of, of Paul's writings. Uh, another theologian says, it's, it's the queen of Paul's epistles. And so we look, when we come to the book of Ephesians, Paul, the theolog theological globetrotter himself, has spent a significant amount of ink writing down important doctrine, teaching those in Ephesus the, the deep truths of the gospel of our faith. Um, but I want you to know he's not satisfied there. He's not stopping just there. So if I could just set up uh, our letter, our context. Um, if you look at it, Acts chapter 9, 
or 19, uh, Paul goes to Ephesus. And so I, I love Paul, his, his missiological philosophy in Romans 1.16, many of you may have memorized. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believed. First for the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so Paul, when he comes to town, he asks two questions. One, where are the Jews? So he goes to the synagogue and he, he preaches the gospel there. And then when they've had enough of him, he says, now where are the Gentiles? Acts 19 comes to Ephesus, the hall of Tyrannus. So he goes and he preaches Christ there. So he has a, a dilemma on his hands. He has people coming to faith who are Jews and, and Gentiles. And if you know uh, much about that time, Jews and, and Gentiles did not really uh, cross paths, did not do any meaningful relationship with one another. And so what Paul could have done is he could have started a church on the, the east side of town, First Baptist Jew, and uh, that's how they could have ran things. And then on the other side of town, west side, they could have started First Baptist Gentile, and things would have been great. That's not what Paul does. Jews and Gentiles come into faith. He says, no, we're going to exist in community together. And so that, that, that sets up the context of this letter to the churches in Ephesus. And it's a circular letter, and so that means that this letter was passed around to multiple churches throughout Ephesus. And so we come to chapter 1. Uh, Paul, uh, he, he does a praise break. He, he praises God how God has blessed us. Dr. Eric Mason says he, he praises God for the triune click that rose thick. How God has blessed us in Christ through the Spirit. So in Christ, and we've been redeemed. In Christ, we've been forgiven. In Christ, we've been adopted. In Christ, he's revealed his plan to us. I love it. I think it's uh, 113. He has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter 2. I love chapter 2. It might be one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Which, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, verses 1 through 10, how we've been vertically reconciled to God through Christ. For, uh, verse 1 through 3 talks about how we were naughty by nature. We were dead in our sins. We were headed down a, a, a one-way path to hell. Verse 4, if I had the organ up here, but God. Come on now, but God. Thankful that God intervened on our behalf. But God, he made us alive in Christ. Verse 8 through 9, a, a famous passage for us. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of our own doing, so that no one should boast. So that means in the kingdom of God there should be no chest beating in here. There's nothing that we have done to save ourselves. So we've been vertically reconciled to God through Christ, but it doesn't stop there. I think Americans, we can get down with verses 1 through 10, very individualistic culture, but chapter, or verse 11 through 22, Christ has created one new family. And I, I think verse 1 through 10, 11 through 22 have very similar structures. The beginning of the second half talks looks at Gentiles. Remember, you were once separated, alienated from the promise of God, alienated from the people of God. Uh, I think it's verse 13 or 14. But now in Christ, to the organ, but now in Christ, he has brought uh, both uh, groups of people together, creating one new man, one new body. And so that word one new man in the Greek is kainos. And that word kainos means a whole new invention. So what Paul was saying is the, the only place that you saw meaningful relationship between Jews and Gentiles in that day and age was the church of Jesus Christ. It was like a whole new invention, something no one had ever seen before. Chapter 3, Paul talks about uh, kind of his testimony and how he's a prisoner for Christ and how 
God called him to preach this mystery, that the mystery is that Gentiles are now heirs and partakers of the promise. And then chapter 4, Paul, therefore, he urges us to, to live out our calling. And then he says that we need to uh, make every effort to, to live in unity. And so chapter 2, Christ won unity. Chapter 4, he's calling us to, to in the present day and age, to uh, work it out, to pursue, to maintain this unity that Christ won at the cross. And then you go on, chapter 4, he talks about how we need to, he gives them the pastors and the teachers and, and the apostles to the church so that they would uh, shepherd and see the, the church mature, to be uh, raised up, built up into the head, which is Christ. And so we see uh, Paul, chapters 1 through 3, Paul points to the believer's wealth in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, now he turns the corner and he, he emphasizes our walk in Christ. And so if you look at chapters uh, in your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 1, it acts as a bridge connecting the two halves of our letter. And so we see that Paul is not interested in us becoming cognitively obese in our knowledge. Nor is he interested in us gaining all this knowledge so we can have sophisticated arguments on Facebook. So chapter 4, verse 1. I, Paul, therefore. Brothers and sisters, it's important you understand that Paul was a therefore theologian. Paul turns from exposition to exhortation. What God has done to what we must do. From learning to living. This transition from doctrine to duty, truth to life, principle to practice hinges on this word, therefore. So Paul is saying, what I'm about to say has to do with what I just said. It was Princess Margaret uh, who was going to be presented to uh, British society for the first time. So she was called to address uh, the British people. So before she could stand up and to address them, a Queen Elizabeth leaned over to her and whispered in your ear, you're a princess. Walk like one. In a lot of ways, this is a summary of Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. Paul is saying, you are redeemed. You ought to walk like it. You are forgiven. You ought to walk like it. You are rich in Christ. You ought to walk like it. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You ought to walk like it. You are a part of a new community uh, a new church, a multi-ethnic, multicultural family, you ought to live like it. So throughout the second half of this letter, Paul is calling us to walk a certain way. If you look at four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Four, verse 17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 5, 2, walk in love as Christ has loved us. And then to our text, 5, 8, walk Oh, that's not our text. 5, 8, walk as children of the light. And then to our text, uh, 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. So I think it's safe to say, looking at the book of Ephesians, God cares how we walk. God cares how we walk. So this word walk simply means uh, the way ones conduct themselves, how you live. So verse 15 in our text, look, look with me. He says, look carefully then how you walk. So the idea of looking carefully, this idea of having the intense awareness of, keeping close attention, looking in the mirror, examining, 
contemplating, discerning with the mind's eye. So I played football at, uh, at K-State under coach uh, Bill Snyder. And so real quickly, I, I just had to learn how to examine myself. And so uh, you ask my wife, she was an athletic turn on the team. She understands that every practice, every workout, everything that we did was either recorded, monitored in some way so that we could evaluate ourselves, how we would perform. Because we cared, the coaches cared about our performance, how we played. So hear me out, I'm not arguing for performance-based faith. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved. Again, no chest beating in here, but, but Paul calls us to live in step. He calls us to live a certain way. He calls us to examine, to look carefully at how we walk, how we live. So again, Ephesians 4, back to Ephesians 4, he says, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we see at Paul, he urges, he pleads, he, he's begging, walk, live, conduct yourself in a way that's in a manner worthy of your calling. So this, this calling is the divine call of saving grace. One theologian says the idea of calling refers to God drawing men and women into fellowship. Hey, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about uh, forbearing with one another, <laughs> which really means put up with one another. And so we, sometimes we got to put up with some stuff up in here. All right. All right. Feet, where were we at? Ephesians 4? Ephesians 4. Paul urges them, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so this word worthy, again, I know I'm going through Ephesians quick. If you're in chapter 4, underline that word worthy. This word worthy, uh, it means corresponding with, congruent with, in a way that's helpful for me, balancing the scales. This picture of scales is the weight of one side measuring up to the weight of the other side. So Paul is saying that on the one side, on this side of the scale, we have this beautiful theological doctrine, what God has done in Christ. Now he's saying your conduct must match your calling. Your conduct must match it. Christian belief must result in Christian behavior. And so if I were to carefully examine, take inventory of the church of Jesus Christ today in regards to living in conduct, I think I agree with Dallas Willard, who says, we live in a culture today where in church, hear me, you can be a Christian without being a disciple. 
You can be a Christian without being a disciple. If I go a step further, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. Guess how many times the word disciple is used? 269 times. So Dallas Willard goes on to say the New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. So in the church today, what Dallas Willard is getting at is he says we have separated this idea that you can be a Christian and live your life and not be a disciple. And Dallas Willard is saying that's not biblical. There's nowhere in the scripture. If you're a Christian, you're saying you're a disciple. So a disciple means a learner, a student, or like a favorite pastor of mine says, an apprentice of Jesus. And so, yes, we trust in Jesus as, as Savior, but we also must look to Jesus and how to walk, how to live as our Lord and our master teacher. So Jesus is the perfect picture. This is why I tell people why I read the Gospels. Jesus is, is, is the best picture of God that we have and the best picture of who God wants us to become like. And so we have to look at Jesus. So in our text, Paul explains how one should walk. And he gives three different contrasts. And those contrasts, they have the words not and but. And so what he's saying is don't live like this, not like this, but live like this. So verse 15, not as unwise, but live wise. Verse 17, not foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 18, not drunk with wine, that is uh, considered debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So if you want to walk well, Paul says, be wise. If we look at, at wisdom in the context of Ephesians, look at verse, uh, chapter 1 uh, or verse 17, chapter 5. I think it, it, it's a parallel contrast uh, to verse 15. Verse 15, don't be unwise, but be wise. 17, don't be foolish, which is the opposite of wise, but understand what the Lord's will is. So how do you live a wise life? You understand what the Lord's will is, which means understand God's purpose, what he determines, what he wishes to be done, what will happen. And so track back with me to chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul talks about wisdom there. I love hearing the pages turn. Paul says, in Christ, he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So we see wisdom. We see will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so we see that in some shape or form that God's will is connected and identifies with mystery. His plan, his purpose, all of those things are connected. And that plan and that passage is focused on who? Jesus. And how all things are working so that everything will be united and be under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. That's Revelation. When he talks about Revelation 7, all nations, tribe, and tongues will come together, be surrounded around the Lamb. Praising, worshiping, so we'll be in perfect relationship together, and we'll be perfect relationship with Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. So Paul says, you want to walk right, you want to walk wise, understand. Understand, the word understand, I think 
it's clear that what he's saying is we need to learn to, to think. We need to learn to think Christianly. It was the late J.R. Packer who said the church is a thousand miles wide and a half inch deep. The church is a thousand miles wide and a half inch deep. And John Stott, in his book, Your Mind Matters, he quotes Packer and continues to write how the church has neglected thinking right. I mean, wasn't it the great commandment that Jesus said that you need to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Romans 12, 2, Paul says, not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So I love it. Paul says, understand the Lord's will. Think how Jesus would think. Seek to comprehend, to gain insight into the Lord's will. So that's why, my friends, we've got to be closely tethered to the Scriptures. We have to be tethered to the Scriptures. So if you're not drinking, abiding, dwelling in the Scriptures, you will not understand the will of God. You will not understand the will of God. And some of y'all think, well, I got the Spirit, so I'm good. Come on now. The Word and Spirit always go hand in hand. Next chapter, uh, chapter 6, Paul calls the Word, or uh, what did he say? Uh, the sword of the Spirit is the Word. So they go hand in hand. John, Jesus says in John 4 that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So if you want to think Christianly, if you want to understand the, the Lord's will, evaluate your relationship with the Word of God. Can, you, can we just evaluate our relationship with our Bibles today? And, and don't, don't get it twisted. Some people like to operate like the Holy Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. That's not what I'm saying. But but the Word and the Spirit, they have to go together. So this idea of, of thinking, learning, it should lead to right conduct. Seeking to understand the Lord's will should change our thinking, but also have implications for our day-to-day living. So John Stott, he talks about the Lord's will. Obviously, if you look at Scriptures, we understand the general will of God. That, that, that God is, is, is seeking to create a people for himself. We see that in Genesis 12. He, he makes a promise to Abraham that through you, I'm going to bless you to bless all people, to bless all nations. So we see this promise that he's going to, to get a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural family, that Jesus will come through Abraham and he will bless all people. So Ephesians 2, in Christ He's created one new man. And I love Revelation 7. We see that we're going to get it. And so we we understand, if we look at Scripture, God's general will, that he's making us more like Christ. He's trying to sanctify us. Now, specific, particular will. That's, That's where it gets difficult. Should I marry this person or not? Should I take this job? Should I move into this neighborhood? Should I go to this school? Detailed. Decisions. So my view is to, to answer questions like that, they should, it should always flow out of the general will, out of the narrative of Scripture. With these three things attached in discerning the process, God's word, careful prayer, 
and, and, and thought, trusting in the Spirit's guidance, and community. I'm always hesitant when I hear people talking about making decisions and they're not processing, they're not in community, they've isolated themselves. So whether it's your community group, your mentor, uh, or, or a mature believer that you trust who knows you, who knows you. So we have the general will, specific will. It should always flow out of the general. And with those three things attached, God's word, prayer, trust in the spirit, and community. So this idea, this leads to the third contrast of how Paul is calling us to live, how he's calling us to walk. Verse 18 to 21. In the Greek, it forms one long sentence. So Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And in the rest of the sense, he's describing the, the, the Spirit-filled life. And so if you look at, again, back to chapter 1, I love how Scripture just uh, works together. Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul has said that you've been sealed with the Spirit. So this isn't an issue, uh, this isn't a, a command in verse 18 of whether you have the Spirit or not. The church has the Spirit. You've been sealed with it. The promised Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. 430, he talked about do not grieving the Spirit. Now, chapter 5, he says be filled with the Spirit. And so, again, this isn't an issue of whether they have it or not. But Paul, look at Paul. I love, I love what he does. He, he is contrasting being filled with the Spirit with getting drunk with wine. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this idea of being filled, uh, this is a command. So it's not optional. You can't just get out of it if you want. This isn't something we just can't ignore. It's a command. Be filled. So not only is it a command, but it's also a, a passive command. Let the Spirit fill you. So spirit filling is, is the work of God, not man. The work of God, not man. I think it was John the Baptist who said, I baptize water, but Jesus, someone greater than I, is going to come. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. So we must ask God every day to fill us. We must humbly submit to the Spirit's working in our life. So it's a, it's, it's a passive command, but... If we go a step further, it's also a present tense command. So Paul is saying this is a continuous command. We are to go on continuously being filled with the Spirit. And so I, I know how my days go. There are times where I wake up in the morning, I'm like, Lord, fill me with the Spirit. I, ha- I have my time in the Word, and I'm feeling, feeling really spiritual. I'm driving, and then someone cuts me off. Little Spirit, then I've gone on out. I get, I get to the church, someone says something to me sideways, little spirit leaks on out. And at the end of the day, I come home, it's been a long day, and I'm reacting poorly to, to my wife, to, to my little daughter. Spirit keeps leaking. So present tense, continue, continuously being filled. I need to abide, to drink deeply, keep drinking from the spirit. So he compares it, I love it, to being drunk. And Dr. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones, who writes as a pastor and a physician, says this. Wine or alcohol is a depressant. He says, take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol, and you will find always that it is classified among depressants. It is not a stimulant. Further, it depresses first and foremost the highest center of all in the brain. 
They control everything that gives man self-control, wisdom, understanding, judgment, balance, uh, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a person behave at his very best and highest. Then John Stott also uh, continues this thought in saying, a person who is drunk, we say, is under the influence of alcohol. They are controlled by it. And he goes on to say, a spirit-filled Christian is under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you look at this word, uh, filled, in the Greek it is pleroma. And it literally means being filled to overflowing. So the same word, uh, according to one of my mentors, is used to, to describe uh, a pregnant woman. All right? And not just any old pregnant woman, but a pregnant woman in the last days of her trimester. And I'm talking so enough pregnant. I mean, I, I'm talking so pregnant that you can't bend down to tie your shoes. I'm talking so pregnant that you can't get comfortable in your bed. I'm talking so pregnant that even though you don't know her, you step to her courageously asking her when the baby's due pregnant. That, that is what this word, it's as if Paul in Ephesians 5 is saying, do not get drunk with wine, but be third trimestered in the spirits. He's saying be controlled by the spirit. This reminds me, I was in D.C., Washington, D.C. A, a, a week and a half ago. And I was reading Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's as if he's saying, be dominated by the Spirit. And something that's important to say that, I think it's really important, is being filled with the Spirit doesn't allude to some spiritual intoxication where you lose control, where you're just cutting loose, where there's no control. As a matter of fact, go a few verses later in Galatians 5, Paul says, and the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So being filled with the Spirit isn't you start flying off the handle being crazy. That's not what being filled with the Spirit is. So I think a struggle I had with this text is, is the application. When it's, when it's present tense, to be filled, something God does, but not what we do. And it's a continuous command. And so if we look at the rest of the, of the passage, Paul goes on describing a spirit-filled life, verse 19 21, is if you're filled with the spirit, then you're going to worship. You're going to be a worshiper. You're going to be in, in fellowship, community. You're going to be someone who's thankful and you're going to be in submission to one another. But back to the application, I, I struggle because there's not just a five-step process to being filled with the Spirit. There's not some manual that I can give you all a book that's just going to tell you this is how you get filled. But I agree with H.B. Charles when he speaks to the conditions, uh, to, the conditions you can create for Spirit and filling. H.B. Charles points to Colossians 3.16, which says... And there's a lot of similarities to this verse in our text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So you see the, you see the connection. 
Then Paul gives the same characteristics of spirit filling he gives in Ephesians 5. I'm just going to read it. He says, be filled with the spirit. And then he goes on to say the same thing. Speak to one another in psalms and and singing. And and he goes on and goes forth. And so there's a lot of parallel. But Paul in Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Chapter 5, he says, be filled with the spirit. And so... The word of Christ must, again, dwell in you richly. I'm going to say it again. You cannot separate the spirit and God's word. I'm going to keep saying you cannot separate the spirit of God and the word of God. The spirit-filled life is a result of the word of God dwelling in you richly. H.B., Charles continues his thought with this. He points to Ephesians 6, 17, which I alluded to. That the sword, the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, uh, when the devil attacks your devotion to Jesus, the spirit is there to help your, you stand your ground. But the Holy Spirit only fights with his own sword. If you do not have the word of God in you, the spirit uh, has nothing to fight with. But to hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word is to put a sharp sword in the hand of the Holy Spirit. And so I think the word of God is crucial for the spirit-filled life. And not only the word of God, but with this being a passive tense verb, we need to start every day asking God for prayer. Asking God, God, fill me with the spirit. Help me walk in step, Galatians 5, with the spirit. Help me produce fruit of the spirit. So when we, when we are close, when we are going to spend time praying, asking God to fill us, um, then we just have to have a heart uh, of, of, of submission. I'm reminded of the parable of the tax collector um, and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, when, when he prays to God, he says, God, thank you for not making me like these people. And, and, and he almost gives his spiritual resume. God, this is what I've done. Thank you for making me like this. And you have the tax collector who uh, doesn't even look up to heaven, but he beats his, his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it says the task that went home justified. And so I want to pray for this church that you would have the heart, not of the Pharisee, but of the task collector, humble, submitting ourselves to the Spirit's work in our life. So as I struggle to land this plane... Let's look at the last three verses. I'm just going to do a broad brushstroke. Paul then says, the proof is in the pudding. He goes on to describe a spirit-filled life by saying, if you are full with the spirit, he says you should be um, in harmony with both with God and with each other. Love God, love people. So let's start with God. Look, Look at verse 19. Uh, The second half of 19, Paul says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then he goes on giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying fruit of being spirit-filled is being joyful. It's being thankful, passionate in our worship. Our hearts sing songs of joy. And so I love it. He says, what what does he say? He says, making melody to the Lord with your heart, sing from the depths of our soul, authentic worship. 
That's what he's saying. If you're filled with the Spirit, you authentically and joyfully worship. And then he says, you're thankful. You, you have thankful hearts. You, you're constantly in prayer of thanksgiving. And so if I could just talk to somebody here today, uh, if you are joyless, if you're always complaining, if you're grumbling, ungrateful, that's not the Spirit. That's not the Spirit. So Paul says, love God, worship wholeheartedly, authentically. Secondly, love one another. He talks about how we should interact with each other horizontally. It was John, uh, Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, he gives the disciples a new commandment. He said, new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is how you show to be my disciple. So he says, you're going to say you follow me. If you're going to say you're my disciple, then you need to love one another well. You need to love. That, that, that's how you, you show that you're truly authentically following him is how we love. How we love. So, again, look at verse 19. Paul uses language of speaking to one another in, in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs. And so, I've, again, there's connection to Colossians 3.16 when he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So there's, there's a lot of connection with Colossians 3 in our text. So I think what he's pointing to is, is ministering to one another. Church isn't something where you just, church isn't some, somewhere you just come and you just receive, 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 and you're not giving. You're not serving. You're not ministering to one another. Ephesians 4 talks about building up one another. So I think Paul is pointing to our relationship with one another, our, our edification as the body of Christ. And he talks about singing songs. I think that's, he's alluding to public worship. Like we're doing here today, we sing songs together. And then verse 21. It's a verse you could preach a sermon on in and of itself. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this idea of submit means to arrange, under, to yield, to, to be subject under. And this, the Greek term is actually this, this military term, which means to arrange troops under the command of a leader. To arrange troops under the command of leaders. So Paul says, you do this, you submit to one another out of what? Out of reverence, out of uh, fear, out of awe for Christ. So he's saying if you submit to Christ, you, should, you shouldn't have any problem submitting to one another. And I love this because if, if I came back next, next Sunday, this verse 21 submits or, or sets the stage, submitting to one another, reverence for Christ, he sets the stage for the rest of the book. Because he goes on to talk about husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. And so he just said, you must submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And so, again, if you are uh, in your community, if you are aggressive, if you are harsh, if you are self-assertive, um, if you're domineering, if you're brash, you're not filled with the Spirit. That's not fruit of the Spirit. Christ's Spirit is gentle and kind, loving, servant-hearted. I'm reminded of, of, of my, my first wedding I did, uh, Philippians 2. It was right at the wedding. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in uh, humility consider others better than yourself. 
And he talks about, I think it's verse 5, put on the mind of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Consider others better than yourselves. Submit to them. Serve them. Put their knees before your own. So people should look at the bridge church, this community, and see how you love each other. I think there's no mistake that Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the lead-off batter is love. And so how you love each other is crucial. How you serve, how you submit, how you put others' needs before your own. I think that's part of Ephesians 4. He talks about making every effort to keep this unity. John 17, Jesus prays. He prays for those, uh, the future believers, those who will believe. And he prays three times, verse uh, 21 through 23, he prays for oneness. I pray that you would be one. I pray that you would be one. I pray that you would be perfectly one. And, and attached to this oneness, he says, so that the world may see that God sent the Son. So D.A. Carson says, John 17, when Jesus prayed this prayer, he had the lost world in mind. That the lost world would see the church, this one new man, this, this body living in community, loving each other, serving each other, submitting to one another, that they would see this community and just be like, man, what is going on? That, I believe that's the power of God because these types of people don't intermingle with each other. But to be united, to be one, you have to serve one another, submit to one another, put others' needs before your own. So Paul says, spirit-filled life, is, is worshiping God with joy and thanksgiving and speaking and submitting to one another. Worshiping God with joy and thanksgiving and speaking and submitting to one another. Community. And again, the source, the common, denominator, the common denominator is the source, the spirit. And so what I just want to do to close is I just want to spend 30 seconds to a minute just in silence just practicing, just prayer and asking God to, to fill us with the Spirit. And, and I think we need to create habits and rhythms in our days where uh, maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's midday and, 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 and at night. And it could be two to three minutes just in prayer. God, fill me with the Spirit. John Stott prayed, ripen the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Help me to walk in step with your Spirit. Maybe you're you're meditating on a, a verse or two. We're creating those rhythms that, that train our minds, train the way that we think. So let's take 30 to 40 seconds to just pray and ask God to fill us with the Spirit. Father, we, uh, we're just thankful. 
We're thankful that uh, Jesus said he had to go so that the Spirit could come. He said that the Spirit was greater. So there's a reason he had to leave, that the Spirit would come. And so Lord, we're thankful that you've given us, you've sealed us with uh, your Spirit. And Father, I just want to pray um, over the Bridge Church that you would just um, continue to fill this church with your Spirit. That this would be a church that is spirit-led, a church that is, uh, does not grieve the spirit, a church that is walking in step with the spirit, a church that is tethered uh, to the word of God. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that this, this church would be known for how they worship authentically from the depths of their heart, how they love one another, how they speak to one another, how they submit to one another. And so, Father, would you be with each person in this room, I ask and pray that you would fill each person here with your spirit. That people wouldn't see us as, as, as followers of Christ and misunderstand God. That they wouldn't see us and think, oh man, those Those guys don't have a lot of joy. They sure do complain a lot. They sure are pretty negative. But they would see the Bridge Church and say, wow, they're they're, they're thankful. They're full of joy. They're always loving each other. They're always serving, submitting to one another. Well, I pray that this church would would be continue to be transformed to the image of your son, that they would be where they are in the city of Wichita for your glory, for more people to, John 17, that they would be unified, that they would be one so that the world would see and that more would come to faith, that more would want to be a part, that more would want what this church has. And so, Lord, we... We are just in all of you. We are in reverence of you. That, that God put on flesh and bone and move into the neighborhood. Dwelt among us. Dying on the cross, dying death that we deserve. And raising in three days, conquering death and sin. And now you sit at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. And so, Father, I pray um, that your kingdom would come here in this church as it is in heaven. Jesus, I pray, amen.